everyone, and welcome to the new episode of the Women in Economics Initiative podcast. This is the third episode of a new podcast series on the econ job market. Our goal is to collect valuable information about the job market and gather tips on how to ace it, and finally to discuss experiences with previously successful candidates. I'm Jelena Todorovic-Bojevic, coordinator of the events team at WE and your host this year. Today, I'm joined by Sarah Jacobson, a professor of economics at Williams College. Sarah's research interests lie at the intersection of environmental, experimental, and microeconomics. In this episode, we will briefly discuss positions at liberal arts colleges and talk about do's and don'ts for resume writing and personal websites. Dear Sarah, Welcome to the WE Podcast. I'm so happy to have you as a guest. Thank you, Yelena. I'm very happy to be here. So why don't you tell us a bit about yourself? And as I like to say, why don't you tell us your academic story? Absolutely. Thank you for asking. So um, I, as you said, I teach at Williams College now. Um, my story is a little bit meandering and kind of strange. So I actually <laughs> did my undergraduate degree in engineering, um, and I, yeah, totally different. And I got out there in the world. I had no idea anything about academia or anything. I just wanted a job. And I kind of did that for some years. And I decided I wasn't saving the world. I wasn't making the big differences in anybody's lives in particular. And so I wanted to do something different. A lot of engineers get an MBA. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I went and I started to take classes toward an MBA because that's a good way to do something different. And that's when I took my first economics class ever wow. was in that MBA program. And I was like, oh, this is pretty cool. <laughs> and and it's right, right? Amazing, and so yeah. I, yeah. So I, from that point, I switched from the MBA program into the master's in economics, still working full-time, then eventually switched into the PhD in economics program, still working full-time <laughs> my engineering job. And then eventually I quit my engineering job did the PhD full-time and went on the academic job market and got my first job, which is my, my only job as a PhD so far at Williams College 12 years ago. And that's how I got where I got. Wow. What an amazing story. I wasn't aware of that. <laughs> so all of you engineers who might be listening to us, so give it a try with economics. As you can see, it can be super fun. Exactly. Super fun. <laughs> so, so happy that, that you've shared that with us because um, I always like to learn how people got into econ and uh, I've never heard such a story. So thank you for sharing that with us. So Williams College is a liberal arts college and maybe you can tell us a little bit how positions look like at those kind of colleges, how they compare to universities. So when people apply to colleges, what they could expect. Yeah, absolutely. And so my undergraduate degree is from a liberal arts type school. Um, and so to me, liberal, liberal arts was kind of on my radar um, mm -hmm. when I went on the job market. But I know it's kind of a particularly American thing. I don't believe that there are liberal arts schools very much in other countries. I think it's helpful to know a little bit about it. And I think a lot of people who didn't go to liberal arts schools, you just like, how do you know what that is? It's just a different lifestyle. So I think that um, liberal arts schools, they are typically pretty small. Mm -hmm. They are often private. 
not always private, and they are very student focused. Okay. There are a couple of distinctions that are worth making, I think. One is there's a difference between a liberal arts school and a teaching position. So you could have a teaching position at a even a big research university. There's a bunch of like teaching tenure track jobs. And then there are big yes. public universities where I think most of the faculty have jobs that we, we would consider very intensively teaching jobs. So a high teaching load. Liberal arts schools, you may or may not have a pretty high teaching load, but they are they're just a different sort of approach. Again, it's smaller. It is very much an academic community. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of focus on um, the student having a broad experience and the student engaging on multiple levels. Within the liberal arts world, there is a lot of differentiation. I think I could say like a hierarchical vertical differentiation in a sense. So the top 10 or 20, in quotation marks, liberal arts schools in the U.S., which you can think of as basically, you could just look at the U.S. Um, News and World Report ranking of liberal mm-hmm. arts schools, and those are that's basically how we tend to think of them is, is according to that ranking. So the top you know, 10 or 20 or even 40 schools are pretty similar um, in terms of small schools where the professors engage in both teaching and research. You're expected to have excellence in both. And you, your teaching in expectations are not just a little bit higher, but also a little bit different from at a large university. So if these liberal arts schools, you expect students to come to office hours, to want to engage with you in the classroom and outside the classroom. You expect students to invite you to coffee. You expect students to invite you to their dance performance or wow. their crew regatta. It's very, like, it's very integrated, the society, the, the community on these campuses. Um, you might serve on committees that students are on. Um, there's also faculty governance is, is a big element of a lot of liberal arts schools. So, you know, different folks are going to opt in to different degrees of that kind of interaction with the students, but it's definitely part of the culture of yes. these places. The other thing that I think is worth mentioning um, when we're thinking about these liberal arts schools is that thinking about as you move through the rankings, if you will, of the liberal arts schools, as you go down in the ranking, the teaching load will go up and the research expectations will go down. So it's really, Hmm. yeah, it's just like the research universities, you see that that trade-off as you go through the rankings. And so the top top 10 or so, um, which includes Williams, really have very similar teaching loads. And the teaching loads are actually not that different from the research schools on paper. We just spend a lot more time with students outside the classroom. Because of that, because these top tier schools, we spend a lot of time with our students yes. um, and we have high, te- high research expectations as well. We also tend to have really generous sabbatical policies. Um, All right. Yes, it is. It is a very good thing. So for example, most of these schools will have a pre-tenure sabbatical, some of them quite generous, like Williams is quite generous. And it's important because if we didn't have it, we wouldn't be tenurable. Like we wouldn't be able to produce what they what they expect us to produce. But I know a lot of research universities where you don't get a sabbatical until after tenure. And it makes yes. a huge difference to have that. Exactly. I mean, that's such an important difference because it indeed gives you time to to do the work and, and be able to afterwards indeed get promoted. But I also love that close relationship you have with your students. It's really amazing. And uh, sometimes I feel that we miss that at universities. And sometimes I think that I'm overdoing it with with students that I'm teaching. 
So I miss that component uh, definitely uh, when it comes to regular university, so to say. So to all people yeah. out there who are uh, that kind of a person and, and they think that they would like it, it's definitely useful to know those information about liberal arts. Thanks a lot. And it's and it's very meaningful, those connections that you make. Like my first thesis student, um, my undergraduate thesis advising, um, she just got a tenure track job. And um, that's super exciting. Yeah. Like my other students, you know, who've graduated, they go out in the world and then they come back and visit or they send me emails and tell me what they're up to. And it's really wonderful. Like you, you build this network of alumni that you're really close with. And it's it feels very meaningful. Amazing. I mean, as you say, you were looking for a job where you really wanted to see your purpose and how you change the world. And there is nothing better than this. So nothing really tops this up. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I and and uh, someone said, I can't remember who it was that said this, you know, most of us, if you look at our papers, not that many people are really going to read most of our papers. But if you think about the number of students we have contact with in the classroom and the difference we can make there, clearly the vast majority of us, the biggest difference that we're going to make in the world is through our interactions with our students. Indeed. Indeed. That's really nicely put. <laughs> nicely put together. I really like it. Thank you. So... As we are now uh, in the job market season and all the applications are already out, people are expecting to get invited for first interviews. So um, maybe we can uh, talk a little bit about one crucial component of every application package, and that's our resume. So I that's how I actually learned about you because you have amazing thread on Twitter with lots of do's and don'ts when it comes to writing your CV. So could we please start discussing what one CV definitely needs to have and on the other hand then we can we can follow up with what people should not be doing when they're sending out their CVs. Yes. Um yes and thank you for that. I I I, I have a little bit of a cottage industry of giving people um, sometimes unsolic unsolicited comments on their CVs. And, and so <laughs> I figured I would just write up all the all the advice together and, and when I made that CV thread. Uh, yeah. And the first thing I'll say is that CVs and resumes, at least in the U.S. context, they're slightly different things. And okay. so CVs you would tend to send to like academic jobs. And then the resumes, those tend to be for the private sector jobs. And I actually don't know much about what an academic resume is supposed to look like. Okay. Um, so, or I should say a resume of somebody who has a PhD. So I'll, I'll speak to the, um, to the CV side. Yes, please. Okay. So um, I think that there are a couple of, I guess, big picture ideas that I would keep in mind with regard to the CV. The first thing I will just put out there is that some people go to a school where the Um, the school or the graduate director has a template that you are required to use. And it's on, <laughs> I mean, my experience with those is that those are terrible and they, Always. everything is laid out wrong. They look ugly. The most important information is not up front. Um, yeah. And that's kind of unfortunate. Um, but if you have to do it, you have to do it. Then when you finish the job market, then you can make your CV look nice. Um, so <laughs> this is a short, a short term affliction. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so the CV is the most important document um, describing who you are as a mm. scholar, in my opinion, because all everything that you've done pretty much 
is going to live there in your CV. So if somebody wants to just get a quick glimpse of who you are, that's where they're going to look. So, um, you know, the first thing that I look at for a job market candidate is the CV probably before the cover letter or the papers or anything. Absolutely. So the, 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 some of the things to bear in mind with regard to the CV is that you want it to be very easy to consume, which means a number of things. Thing one is that you want to have the most important information up front and center. And mm-hmm. if you think about what, what do academics want to know, they want to know about your papers. And so, yeah, so a lot of people are going to put, I don't know exactly how people come up with the orders that they put things in, but a lot of people I find that their papers don't show up on their CV until page two or three. And yeah, so that means you open up the CV and you want to know what they've been up to and you actually have to scroll a while to find it. So I would say whenever possible, you want to make it so that your papers are showing up first. I mean, really, the first thing you have is your contact information block and then your positions and, you know, your education. So those those are those are typically first. But then right away, you want to have your papers. And in general, even though when you're going out on the job market, you don't have a lot of papers, typically, in general, you want to separate out like the papers that are published from the papers that are working papers and then works in progress, which are not yet papers. And for papers that are published or a working paper exists, I think it's nice to list them in the bibliography type format so that you can see all the information there. Um, I think it's easier to consume. So I do have one short question when it comes to your publications. So I think it's a bit different when you have your general CV on your website. And on the other hand, when you send in CV that's uh, for hiring committee to to look at and to discuss. So would you advise when, if, for example, people in the meantime actually submit their paper somewhere and it, for example, gets revised and submit, would you put that in your CV or is that relevant or? Absolutely. In my opinion, the, well, so, so one thing is keeping your CV updated is a very yes. good idea. Always. Um, another thing is I would never advise to have multiple CVs because why would you do that to yourself? It's just too much, too much stuff to manage. And um, plus, when I get a packet of somebody, if especially if the CV was, you know, uh, prepared some time ago, I'm probably going to go to their website and look anyway. So if you have a different CV on your website, I'm going to look at that CV. Um, so you know, I, I, I think you can't count on people going to your website. Um, you can't count on everyone going to your website, yes. but you can count on some people going to your website. So um, I would say keep your CV updated, but use only a single CV that you just continuously update. Don't have different versions of it, though. And when you get something that is, you know, changes status to be R&R or accepted or other happy news like that, definitely update that on your CV. What I did what I think is useful on the job market is you can say where it's at. Mm -hmm. Um, So you have a revise and resubmit at, you know, the journal of economic behavior and organization, then it's nice to put that in the CV while you're on the job market. It's a little bit weird in general, just because you don't actually have a contract with the journal. And so, you know, on a general CV, you wouldn't put that, but since you're on the job market, it is informative where you got that R&R at. So for that time period, I think that people are willing to say like, that's helpful enough information that you can sort of break convention and put where the R&R is at on your (laughs) CV. 
Yeah, I mean, it it does send some kind of signal to the hiring exactly. committee. So exactly. yeah, that, that's why I think it, exceptions are allowed within this period. Exactly right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the publications and the papers, I think, are the most important thing and updating those as you go along. A sort of semi-related concept is that um, sometimes I see CVs that are very vertically spaced. And this is going to sound like a nerdy, like why would anybody (laughs) care about spacing? But um, you want your CV to be relatively compact and with spacing that makes it that is uniform enough that makes it easy to consume so that you under like your eyes visually understand where the breaks are. But also if it's too spaced out, then you're going to end up with your first page is mostly blank. You're going to have to have a lot of scrolling to do to get actually to the papers and stuff. So I would say make your formatting relatively compact and make it relatively uniform. And one of the things that I do for that is that I use a lot of hanging indents throughout the CV. And I know this sounds like a niggling little detail, but by hanging indent, I mean that the first line of a multi-line item um, is farther to the left. And then the line, then all of the wrapped lines that are part of that item are indented by a half an inch or whatever is appropriate for your setup. And that makes it so that if you have a list of papers, for example, you don't need to have spacing between them because it's very easy for your eye to visually distinguish the first one from the second one and so on. Indeed. So it saves you lots of blank space. Exactly. And blank space on your CV is not your friend. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. I mean, I've never thought about that. That's an excellent tip. Thanks much. I'm, I'm a huge proponent of the hanging indent. I think it makes a huge difference on CVs. Um, yeah, so, you know, little headers with a little bit of spacing, but those hanging indents makes lets you keep your CV nice and information dense. Yes. Um, let's see what else is worth talking about. So in terms of the order of items that you have in your CV, again, continue to keep it in order of what's important. Um, So the papers go first. If you have awards and stuff, then those probably go next. Um, Teaching probably Mm -hmm. goes next. And you can put presentations on there. You should probably put presentations on there, in fact, but you don't need to list out for every presentation as a separate item that says what was presented, what was the conference, what was the location, and so on. Um, That information is actually not very helpful. You know, really, when we look at presentations, we just want to know, is this a serious, you know, project that's up out and about. I don't even list what the project is that was presented anymore. If we, if I look at a CV and I see, oh, Yelena has presented at, you know, four conferences this year or two conferences last year or whatever, I learn Yelena is out in the academic world and sharing her work. And that's really all I need to know from the presentations. Perfect. So then you would keep it short and maybe say, so let me let me just ask, would, would this be all right? And then you tell me whether that's what you had in mind. So for example, 2022, I was on four conferences. I just list their names. Do I put maybe locations in brackets, um, in a sense, country or city, or just name of a conference is just enough? So at this point in my career, I'm just doing the name of the conference. Like the location doesn't actually add any information if you think about it, because it's not the case that the European Economic Association has one in Luxembourg and one in Switzerland. And it's like, oh, it matters that she's at the Switzerland one or something within the same year. Like that's not going to be the case, right? So yeah, so I think it doesn't matter. There's no harm. It just takes up more space. But again, since the presentations are 
hopefully at the end, like closer to the end of your CV, it's not going to get too much in the way. So if you feel emotionally attached to it, you can leave it on there for now. But as your CV gets longer, definitely cut that stuff down because it's just going to get in the way. Awesome. One more thing when it comes to that, sometimes people do get invited to give seminars and as as a PhD student, that's an honor. Uh, Is that worth pointing out? Yes, that's right. So I would say um, within that listing of presentations, it is helpful to distinguish between invited presentations and so and the regular ones, which are just conference things. Um, so I would put, um, if you're doing that dense presentation yes. format, I would put invited in parentheses after the ones that were invited talks. Awesome. What else should we include in our CVs? Yeah, so um, the other items that probably exist on the CV Well, first, I mentioned briefly that teaching is going to be in there in the mix somewhere if you have teaching experience. One thing that's helpful to do when you're on the job market, but probably no other time, is if you can put um, for each class that you have taught or TA'd that you have scores for, it's helpful to put your teaching score and the range that it's out of. So if I taught intro to micro and I had a score of 4.2 out of 5 in the semester that I taught it in, then I will just put that in parentheses right after the class that I taught. That yeah. way, it's just right there. They don't they don't have to go like, you're, again, it's about getting more information more densely into the CV. People don't have to flip back and forth between things. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Indeed. And then... The only other things that I think typically live in the CV, so sometimes people like me who have had other work histories, uh, we might put other work experience, um, Mm -hmm. a section for that. Um, And that can be brief and that can be at the end of the CV because that stuff really isn't important. Then it's also common in an academic CV when you're on the job market, you can get rid of this later, to put your references and their contact information. And then during the job market season only, again, you get rid of this later, you can put um, your dissertation abstracts um, if you are if you are a person who is completing your PhD. Again, it just puts all the information in one place uh, so they don't have to open up another document. But if you'd have already finished your PhD, if you're you know moving from job to job later, then obviously that doesn't make sense. One other thing that's a, a fun tip is that in your um, in your contact information block, it is useful to put your citizenship because certain jobs in various places require it. Another piece of useful information is your languages and your fluency level in them. And that probably goes at the end. I don't think you need like my skills includes data because all of our skills includes data. Like that's proven <laughs> in your papers. That's, that's very straightforward. And then the other thing that's super important is put the last edited date on the CV. That's very helpful. Wow. Indeed. I actually like when I see that. So yeah. 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 But I still don't have it on my CV. That's a great thing. <laughs> <laughs> you see the ad? Um, yeah. And you know, that I was about to say, it's easy to add in Word. There's an auto text field. Um, I'm sure it's easy to add in uh, LaTeX. And yes. then the, I think that the only other thing I can think of is that it does not matter if you write your CV in Word or LaTeX. Literally, no one will care. Yeah, yeah, no one will care. Yeah, even though we are adjusted to to see some kind of things and sometimes it's it's much easier to read. Good. So I think we've covered all of the sections that should be out there. We discussed briefly what kind of informations you should not miss. Do you have may- maybe one or two more additional tips on what people should not do? What do you see as common mistakes? 
uh, such that people can hopefully avoid them in the future. The things that I can think of that I have seen that I'm like, that's kind of weird. One guy uh, had put, this was for a senior post, so it was a little bit different, but um, had put something about his athletic accolades that he had gotten when he was in college, which seemed kind of weird and random. So I wouldn't put anything like that. Some people put what their hobbies are, and I'm not pro or con that. There are some people who think that's frivolous. There are some people who think it's fun. Does it feel like it's oversharing personally and something that's a professional document? I think it might for some people. So the other thing is the service section. A lot of PhD students aren't really going to have much that goes in the service section and some won't have any. Yeah. But if you do have stuff, you know, you will be putting stuff there about any committees that you've served on, referee service. It can be, did you do stuff with your graduate student association, you know, tutoring students within your within your institution, although that might go, go under uh, teaching rather than service. Um you know, there might be some things that you might have done with professional associations. Eventually that will get filled up, but uh, a service section is also, yes. So maybe one last question related to CVs uh, before we move on websites would be, are you pro or actually against putting photos in CVs? I'm against that. I, I think it's a little weird. Um, it's not industry standard in economics in the US. I do see it a little bit more often, I think, in European CVs. It just seems like nothing good can come of it and only bad exactly. things can come of it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's why I think that we, we should avoid it. Indeed. Awesome. Yeah. So hopefully people have taken down all the notes and will implement uh, and improve their CVs because I, I certainly will after this conversation. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and uh, I would say one thing that's super related to your CV and you mentioned that people might visit that when they read your CV is your website. There you also try to somehow present yourself. There you probably would actually like to include your photos. So... How about websites? What should people focus on? Uh, should it be lots of interactive stuff moving around? And <laughs> so what do you what are your um, opinion on, on that? Yes. So on the website, you know, I think a website can be relatively simple. If you want to have, you know, bells and whistles and, and things flying around, <laughs> then you can choose to do that. But I think academic websites can be really quite simple. Um, really what you need it to be is a repository for your CV and your papers. And during the job market, you can put your job market materials up there as well. Obviously, any job you apply to has received your job market materials, but it doesn't hurt to have them up there in case somebody, you know, stumbles across you and they're like, oh, this person, they should apply for our job or whatever. Think of it as a repository space. It very often will have a photo. I do see some people who don't want to put a photo of themselves on the website, but I think especially for interviews, it's kind of handy to have seen a photo of the person in advance. So yes. I think it's, it's nice, you know, and some people are like, well, you shouldn't be out there, you know, it shouldn't be a picture of you out there running or at the top of a mountain or you and your dog or something. I don't think that matters. I think if you want to do that, then you can. I mean, we're not, we're not so strictly business that that would be offensive to anybody. You do, I think you do want to be really careful about sharing too much though. Um, mm -hmm. Some people will have like a sub page on their website where they'll talk about their family or 
show fit photos uh, from hiking or, you know, whatever, whatever things they, that feel personally true to them. I'm not, that's another thing that I'm not really pro or con just because I think it is, this is a professional, you should think of your website as a professional document, just like your CV. And if in the professional space, you want to have these things out there, then you can, it is not the usual thing. And I think, especially if you're going to talk about your family, it is, it's potentially awkward and I would be, I would be a little bit careful with it. I would also say maybe I'm a bit reserved when it comes to that because I indeed see it as, as a professional page where you can learn about me professionally. And of course, maybe someone has questions related to your personal life, but I think that I would actually leave those for maybe interviews. So not everyone has to know everything, right? That's right. That's right. I I mean, I I will say, I think that there are a lot of us who, uh, for example, uh, will have our Twitter feed be both professional and personal and similarly have our website be both professional and personal in the sense that, you know, our professional lives are so rich and full and abundant (laughs) that they take up our whole lives and our personalities bleed into our professional lives so much that it feels unnatural, I think, for some of us to separate those. And I understand that. I would be cautious about it on the job market. I mean, I think we all know nobody should be asking a job market candidate about their spouse or partner and whether they have kids and all those things. And so I think that those sensitive topics during the job market, I would think very carefully about whether you really want to have those on your website. Hmm. Whereas it's much lower risk if you if you just want to put up some some hiking photos or some photos of your dog. Yes, yes. <laughs> I can clearly see that, indeed. So yeah. in your opinion, do you personally prefer to see one-page websites or is it all right for you to have some kind of sub uh, pages and that are somehow subdivided. So click here for my CV, click here to read about my research and so on. So what, what's easier for you to consume? I think those are all equally easy to consume as long as the navigation isn't too difficult. I, I think you do want to make sure that all the links are followable by everybody. And so what do I mean by that? So one thing is your papers that are there, there should be links. If Uh, they are published, then it would be nice if possible to have the link to the journal page, as well as a link to an ungated copy, if you can do that. So that's one thing. Um, Another thing to make sure that everything is followable is your thinking about where your documents are being kept. Um, If your documents are in a Google Drive or a Dropbox, then I know for a fact that a lot of people who work for the US federal government cannot access those. And so it is, especially, for example, if you're using a Google site, then your attachments are going to be in Google Drive naturally. And for other kinds of pages, you know, I think you choose where you put your documents. For me, the easiest place to put all these documents is Mm -hmm. in a GitHub. So for me, I, I, this is what I use my GitHub for. I just put files up there and then I link to those because it seems like everybody's able to access GitHub links. I've never heard about this before, but this is so important. Yeah. I mean, and and, and it also yeah. avoids the issue because a lot of people in Google Drive, they screw up the sharing settings because the yes. default sharing settings is that nobody can get to it. <laughs> yeah. I do that all the time. 
Yep. And and whenever I see requests for, by someone to access your blah, 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 I'm like, oh, God, yeah. you did it again. Again. Yeah. Again, indeed. Exactly. Indeed. Exactly. So I would say that. You know, your CV, um, some people will put the CV not on a separate page, but on the front page, which I think that works well, because literally, if you have a separate page for the CV, it just means you click to that page, and then you click to open the CV, which is kind of like, you know, it's an extra click. It's not the worst thing in the world. Yes. It's not the, the biggest the biggest website crime. Yeah. So, so you know, you can have a front page that has some information about you. If you're dividing it into separate pages, then you want a research page. You may want a teaching page. Um, you may or may not want a about me page where you say more about your background. You might not need that. Yeah. And, you know, in some of the more modern websites, these are not separate pages at all. These, you, you just have this nice sort of dynamic scroll thing going on. I think any of those work, as long as it's easy to navigate, as long as people can get to the main things that they want to get to, which really are your CV and your papers. Indeed. Um, mm. Another thing about the papers that I want to say is that you want to make sure that you clearly mark out which is your job market paper because that's the one that you're leaning into the job market with. And obviously on your job market packets, you will submit this as your job market paper. So that'll be obvious. Yes. But on your website, if somebody just goes to your website, you know, they're not necessarily, you know, looking at your packet at the same time and they don't want to have to dig to find which one is the job market paper. So I've heard people complain about this. So definitely make sure you make that clear. Yeah, yeah, that's indeed crucial and and should be really easily visible. I think maybe also last question that I have when it comes to websites, and maybe it's more of a conclusion than a question for you, but it seems that people should really try not to overspend time building their websites. Yes. Indeed, what matters is your research, what matters is your CV, what matters is your potential. As long as it's readable, as long as it's clean enough such that people can navigate through your website, it's good enough. It doesn't have to be the nicest website because we are not a business and we don't have a shop and customers that need to be satisfied <laughs> with user experience of our website. So Sometimes I feel that um, people, when they share their experience about building their websites, it seems that they overcommit and overinvest time, so to say. And That's I don't right. think it's it's really worth it um, in the end. Yeah, yeah. So I would say for a website, less is definitely more. You would rather have a very simple website where, like, even if it was just a single page that had your CV and your list of papers, you would rather have that and have it updated than have something that was very beautiful, but where you couldn't find people's papers. Indeed. Thanks much for those tips as well. I think we covered CVs and websites and covered some do's and don'ts. And indeed, I have taken lots of notes. There's one more thing that I would like yes. to say about both the CV and the website, which is that if you put something on either your CV or your website, you have to be prepared for people to talk about that thing with you or when you're not in the room. So just be aware of that when, whenever you're thinking about, should I put this on my CV or my website? Mm, so insightful. <laughs> <laughs> that's, in, that's so insightful. <laughs> Amazing. 
This brings us uh, to one particular topic that both of us wanted to discuss, and that's that job market season is indeed very stressful period. I would say for both sides, but now we can talk about candidates that are applying. For months, you are in agony, trying to finalize everything, trying to submit in time, trying to prepare for interviews, prepare for flyouts. Process goes on and on, and it lasts for a couple of months. And I can I can see and and feel that it's it's lot lots of stress. And you brought up exactly this topic that not many people mention this, but it's crucial part of a game. What do we do about that? Yeah, I think it has a real potential to be very stressful for, and I think in reality, it is very stressful for a lot of people. And I think that there are a couple of things that we can do to reduce the stress or reduce the impact of that stress on us. And I'm going to list them, list the things that I can think of in no particular order. <laughs> um, <laughs> so uh, I think the first one is really community. And that comes in a lot of different forms. So I'm just picturing when I was on the job market back in 2010, there were a lot of different people that I met that I got to build community with during the job market process. And I know that that might sound a little bit weird. It might sound like not what you expect to be doing while you're on the job market. But, you know, I took every interview as an opportunity to get to know the people on the other side of the interview. And I made some contacts who are people that I'm still buddies with now. It wow. is a getting to know you opportunity. Also with the other people who are job market candidates. Now I know that this year ASSA is not doing the Zoom interview is doing Zoom interviews instead of doing the hotel interviews, um, which the hotel interviews were kind of problematic for sure. Um, but at ASSA, you had the opportunity to meet a lot of other job market candidates. And there was a certain sense of solidarity and community there. And that was really great. So, you know, finding ways to share that experience with other people, having when it was an in-person first round interview experience, there was always a thing of people having their job market buddy. So when it was an in-person experience of doing the first round interviews, there was always the thing of having your job market buddy who was somebody who was a, a cohort behind you. Um, so mm -hmm. planning to be on the job market last next year, and this person would help you out, um, help you get from point A to point B. They meet you when you come out of an interview and they, you know, cheer you up if it went badly or let you celebrate if it went well, give you snacks when you need them and so on. So I think that even if we don't have that in-person experience, having somebody who you can share with, I think is super important. Wow. That's, that's so brilliant. I mean, I, I'm just thinking about it. We have a couple of candidates from my uni that are applying to job market this year. And I know that now comes season of interviews in, in a couple of weeks or maybe even a couple of days. So I will definitely offer that to a couple of people to be their snack buddy or... Yeah, exactly. Stop by their office need. and bring them a little kind bar between interviews and say, yes. how did it go? <laughs> That's so cute. No, I think I think it helps a lot. I mean, you, you're you're going through a lot of emotions at this time, and I think the reality for me of the job market. So I'm a very social person, and the job market for me was a lot of input coming in continually, 
but I really enjoyed talking to all of the people that I talked to. Mm. Um, it was exhausting because, you know, you're talking to many, many people, one, one group after another, and you're on, like even an, a very extroverted person, you're on all day. And that's very exhausting. I think taking advantage of the good aspects of it, that you get to meet all these really cool people. And these are relationships that you're going to, they're going to stay with you for the long haul, I think is one thing. Um, and that's the community side. I guess I, the other side is that because it is so potentially exhausting, I think for all of us, you need to find ways to give yourself a break. So I know you, everybody might be telling you, you need to work on your job market paper. <laughs> now is not the time when you have to work on your job market paper. So now might be the time when you need to do whatever the thing is that gives your brain a break, you know? Mm. So Finding the community for sometimes you probably need to find some good alone time between interviews because your interviews are going to be such social spaces in certain ways. Um, for me, it was important to read a trashy novel that made a very big difference for me, like all through the interviews and the flyouts. It was something that was entertaining and it did not require my brain and it did not require to me me to be interacting with other people yes that was yes. really important i think another thing is doing the things you need to physically and emotionally take care of yourself and so you know it might sound kind of obvious but things like bring snacks so when you travel for your flyouts you know the food at the airport is always terrible and you're never happy with what you got <laughs> and so I you know I got into a habit of like I'm gonna bring an apple and some granola bars and a bag of nuts and raisins and I was so much happier once I started doing that and so bring that you know if you're a woman you know think about whether there are any feminine products that you need to make sure that you have with you because your body's going to surprise you. So just keep whatever you might need at the handy because it will be better to not have to do a late night search to see if you can find whatever you need. Get all the, the hand lotion that you need. If you like aromatherapy, like whatever the things are that you need, get all the sleep that you can get. If you are an exercise person, um, yes. get the exercise in, you know, the hotels that you're staying in, they're going to have gyms and stuff, you know, make yourself a little, a little, little bit of time to do that. The flyouts can be pretty intense as well. They can be kind of a long day starting from 8am and going to night. Yes. Um, and then at the end of the day, you probably have some emails to do. So be a little bit forgiving if you're not, you know, keeping up with your regular exercise regimen. And be forgiving on yourself in terms of, you know, things like if, if you gain weight, I remember after I finished my job market, my advisor's husband who has zero tact, he came up to me and he said, Hey, did you gain weight? And I was like, thanks. <laughs> Appreciate it. But apparently everybody gains weight on the job market because you're traveling, stress eating, you're stress eating. But even if you're not stress eating, you're keeping these weird hours, you're in weird places. A lot of the interview happens over meals. And so yes. you're just, you're, you know, we're, none of us is used to eating restaurant meals, you know, three meals a day, you know, you do your best, try to choose food that makes you feel good rather than food that looks like it's the right food to be eating in front of your interviewers. But, you know, it's going to be at the end of the interview season, you're probably going to need to do a little bit of like recuperating for your body. Hopefully 
people will be happy with the outcome of their uh, season and afterwards everything will fall into its place so everything that happens in between please please forget and, exactly yeah i mean enjoy the parts of it that because some of it really can be enjoyable so i have one um one person i remember who he got some kind of item to remember every fly out that he went on and i thought that was really super sweet like have because because the flyouts actually they can be intense but they can be really fun um so you know finding ways to find pleasure and joy and entertainment in the process and then just knowing that some parts of it are going to be a little bit hard and you're just going to have to be a little patient yourself yes. Yes, but it really makes sense. And I'm so glad we brought up this topic because I feel that people don't talk about that too much. We indeed know that it's stressful period of, of a year and particularly for people who are on the market. But I think that brought our conversation, you mentioned a couple of very useful things that people can do for themselves. But I also learned what I, as uh, someone's friend and as a colleague, can do for people to make it easier for them. So absolutely, as of Monday, I'll bring in some more some more snacks uh, into the office. <laughs> Excellent. Um, yeah, but, but then I also try to go for healthier versions because somehow we don't happen to bring lots of fruits around, but maybe that can boost people people's um, energy. Mm -hmm. So I'll, I'll take care of that. And Though maybe to some... be fair, chocolate yeah. will always make somebody, somebody's day better. It's 100% true. So yeah, <laughs> there's nothing wrong with chocolate. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Amazing. This was really amazing and very inspiring. I really enjoyed our conversation so much and I'm sure that people will benefit a lot just by listening to it and implementing some some tips that you have given because there is really huge value that you have given throughout this conversation. One last thing that I would ask uh, for closing off um, this episode would be if there is one thing that you would I'd like to say to every candidate that's out there on the market this year, what would it be? The one thing that I think everybody should remember is that economics is a great field to find a job in. Almost everybody who gets an economics PhD finds a job. Almost everybody likes the job that they find and they are paid well. And if you want to move to another job after you're in that job for a little bit, you can do that as well. So it's not like some other academic fields where there's 200 graduates and five jobs. Yes. We're not in that situation. And so, you know, trust a little bit in that you have the skills you need and these skills are in demand and <laughs> you will get where you want to go. This is amazing. And I think that indeed people should be positive and I'm sure that all will work out for them the best way, even though they may not see it uh, at a first exactly, glance. Exactly, exactly. So it's it's the circle of life and you never know yes. what's best for you until you experience it. <laughs> That's right. That's true. Amazing, Sarah. One more time. Thank you so much for being my guest today. And thanks so much for all the tips you've shared with me. This is really one of my favorite episodes I've recorded ever. Oh, thank you, Yelena. <laughs> this has been so much fun. So thanks a lot for that. And thanks everyone for listening to us and, and this episode. I'm sure you will find lots of useful tips that Sarah shared with us. 
stay tuned for more episodes to come on the Econ Job Market. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you, Jana. Thank you, everyone. The views expressed in WE podcasts are those of the interviewers and the guests and do not necessarily reflect the opinion of the organization, its partners, other members, or any other affiliated people and organizations. We'd also like to thank Maddie Stevenson for writing and recording our original theme song. For anyone who would like to learn more about the Women in Economics initiative, please find us online as well as on most social media channels.